Hi, I'm Connor O'Shea and this is the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. On this new podcast from England Rugby, we'll be talking you through techniques, ideas and some of our experiences at the elite level of the game, as well as stories from nearly 50 years coaching experience between us. We hope you enjoyed the first episode and this week we'll be focusing on coaching teams, what makes a successful coaching team, how you manage a team and generalist versus specialist coaching. Right, let's get into it. I've actually just been thinking a bit about what we were chatting about last week. If you were looking at the young you, what would you say to yourself? Like, what 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 have you seen, learnt, kind of look back and go, I can't believe I did that. Um, what would you say to your young self? Uh, don't be in a hurry. Uh, coaching's a, it's an art form that takes a lot of time and a lot of uh, experience to to uh, progress. And and never think you've made it. Like you never become a good coach. You know, you're always chasing, chasing to become a good coach. And I think when you're young, you sometimes think you do know everything. You think you're the smartest man in the room, and in fact, you're never the smartest man in the room. You're always learning, and and that's the great thing about our sport. I think you surround yourself. I look at your coaching team now, and it is you know you've got a young developing coach like Simon. Uh, who's got a lot of experience in sevens, but then you look at people like uh, John Mitchell and Matt Proudfoot, and you look who you've had in the past with people like Steve, incredibly knowledgeable, massive experience. How do you put them together? What's like When you're putting your coaching teams together, A, how do you put them together? And probably the second question, how do you keep on challenging that level of experience? Yeah, well, I think the, the first thing on that is that you're always looking for people who are smarter than you. Um, so in my case, it's not that hard. Um, but but you're always looking for people who have more knowledge. Um, and I, I have a quite a, a simple formula. Uh, I look for someone who's really analytic, that's into the game, the detail of the game, like a Steve Borthwick. So you want someone like that that knows everything, does all the hard work. If you've got analytic players, they go to him. And then you want someone at the other end of the spectrum, which is a more relationship coach, a guy that's got a great feeling for the players, wants to spend more time with the players. Doesn't say he doesn't have great knowledge, but it's more a more a, a players coach, how it'd be described. And then the third coach is someone you want in the middle, which I call the glue coach. Someone that just keeps both ends of the spectrum together. And and so within that you get a range of 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 coaching skills and then you get a range of relationship skills, which I think at the end of the day as a head coach, you always want to make yourself redundant so the mm. assistant coaches can run it. And, and given the, especially the international level, and I, I like it's obviously different as you go through the, where you have that more resource, you've got the ability to put together. I mean, I saw during the week you were talking about that maybe this crisis will not just look at, from a coaching perspective or a playing perspective in terms of the hybrid player, but also some of the coaching that people will have to do more as opposed to expect to have all the individual coaches back. It's, it's going to look for that more all-round coach. So uh, that balance that you have, so you look at a, a Mitch, Steve Borthwick at the moment, and then uh, Jason who'll come in, that balance between the unit coaching, the individual coaching, how do you see that within these and how much time they want? Because, they're all head coaches in their own right. They could all run the team almost in their own right. So how do you get that balance? Yeah, well, that's always the most difficult thing. You know, 
you, you talk to any coaching team in the world and they've never got enough time. Like, no one's got enough time. When I, thought that was only, I thought that was only the conditioners that didn't have enough time. <laughs> conditioners and medics. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. You coach at the community level and, and you got Tuesday and Thursday and you wish you had another night. Um, and you coach at the professional level and you got them all week, but in fact, you've only really got two training sessions a week, so it's the same. And and the, the key thing is to get the coaches in alignment and the alignment has to be a shared vision of what your game looks like um, and then what part the coach plays in in achieving that shared vision and and that means the coach has got an understanding of the whole um, wants to drive his part but you know silo coaching is a, is a thing of the past and I think more and more and particularly post this virus we're going to have to have coaches who are more multi-skilled um, have a wider range of of experience and I think yeah, what's come through in the last 10 or 15 years is that coaches are specialised at a younger age, whereas when you're a young coach coming through in the earlier days, you had to coach everything. Yeah. You had to know everything. You didn't have to be an expert, but you had to know. And and I think the wheel's going to turn again and it'll go back to having more generalist coaches with still having specialist skills. So I think it's going to be a fascinating part of coach development. Yeah, so so if you're a young coach now, because it's so true that, that very quickly you get pigeonholed into being an attack coach, a defence coach, a skills coach, very, very early, because that's the way people want to structure their... If you were giving advice then, not just to coaches, but to people putting teams together, would you say smaller, don't try and spread yourself, uh, like to make sure that we give that opportunity to people? How would you go about it now? Yeah, 100%, particularly for for academy coaches. Uh, I think learn to coach the whole team, coach from the scrum to kick return. Um, have an assistant there to help you, but learn the whole game. And in that way, we'll produce better all-round coaches, which I think, again, is going to be important going forward. Because what we've actually produced is a lot of YouTube coaches that are very specialist. You know, you know what players are like now, you know, Previously, you had a game on a Friday night. The whole team will watch the game. Now, maybe you have six or seven players watch the game. Six or seven will watch the YouTube highlights and six or seven won't know the game's on. And it's the same with coaches now that they specialise in such a small area. They sometimes miss the context of the game. Um, so we need to develop better all-around coaches. And, and, you know, particularly at school level, again, you see school teams now as specialist coaches. It's it's not a good way to develop a coach. And it's funny, you do see, sometimes you have these coaching teams together, you win a match, but let's say the defensive coach has leaked four tries, it's been six tries to four, but the defence coach is depressed after the game and you're looking around going, oh, why, why, why are you so nice? Well, we conceded four tries. You go, it doesn't matter. And the reason we can, we scored six was because we loosened the game up and it's the context of the game, isn't it? Um, yeah. little Very true. Remini- little reminisce I had. Um thinking about your coaching team and just how people evolve. And I, oh, I won't get the year right, but John Mitchell, when he was in Ireland, played for Gary Elm, uh, coached Ireland for a little bit. And yeah, yeah. One, of the, one of my great memories from John, we're away on a tour and a group were allowed, a small group were allowed their night out. Dirt trackers, I think they were called back in those days, weren't they? And um, we went for a night out 
management said, have a good one. You need to let your hair down, relax. And Mitch said to us, uh, guys, I want to see you down 7 o'clock the following morning. Uh, we're going to do a session together. And two of us rocked up the following morning, uh, met Mitch uh, down. And we were a little bit, little bit in trouble, bleary-eyed. And he had been with us for a little bit of the night as well. And he sent the two of us back to bed. And he called the other five guys and said, that was just a test. You work hard, play hard, you work hard. It's a mentality you carry with. You learn so many little things. And that was old school. That was 96, 97 era, the beginnings of professionalism. Maybe Ireland not as professional as we should have been. But people like Mitch were turning us in. That's 25 years ago. So I keep on, what do you do now? Just you take him. How do you challenge someone who's head coach of the All Blacks? He's done everything in the game. He's experienced everything, whether it be coaching America to coach to the All Blacks to been with England. How challenging is that? It's it's interesting because Mitch has made a decision now to be an assistant coach and he wants to be the best defence coach in the world, uh, which is a a challenging opportunity for him and he's getting stuck into it. And I think you've got to just keep ensuring that he keeps growing in that in that job, uh, keeps growing the defence, keeps growing himself as an individual, as a coach. Because, yeah, I think the other thing about coaching now, Connor, is that it's far more complex than it used to be. Yeah, you're talking about relationships. Well, if you do that, if you ha- have that sort of hard-nosed approach to players these days, you'll lose players more quickly. In the old days, you could still lose players, but they were they were used to that sort of hard-nosed approach. And now you have to have this, this range of ways of dealing with players. And I think, you know, for Mitch, again, he's, he's, he's learned a different way of coaching. Um, you know, the Kiwi All Black coaches were tough, you know, farming types. You know, that's how they used to bully the world, the, the All Blacks, and, and that's how they operated. And he's learned a new way of coaching where, you know, the interesting thing, he coaches defence, but he very rarely presents a meeting on defence because he empowers the players to do it and, and more than not, it'll be Owen or, or Courtney Laws presenting on defence and Mitch is happy to take the back seat happy to be a support mechanism for that player. And, and he's understood how you get that balance right between the player and the coach. How difficult is it to say nothing? So you, you talk about uh, that. When you talk about make it, making yourself redundant, you're building in, you realise you're in a meeting, and God knows we've all been through it. Um, the defence coach has said a couple of words. The attack coach, the, God knows who's the... Even the, even the medic has asked about the wellness in the morning, and you just realise there is something I, ha- I want to say I feel it's important, but gee, we've just the the room is gone now. It's had its time. Do you say it? Do you burn up? Have a go at the other coaches for taking too long, <laughs> or just be unbelievably well organised before that meeting to know what's going on? Well, I think the key with with bigger staffs is definitely being well organised. Um, you know, we for for instance with England, we have days, so we have a defence day and attack day, and that's the only thing we'll cover on those days. And so the coaches need to be organised because that's the opportunity they've got to speak about there and they don't get another opportunity to speak about unless it's absolutely urgent. Um, so I think the organisation's important. And I think the other thing is, you know, always as a coach, if you're not adding something to the team business, then don't say it. Every word is, will either have a positive effect or a negative effect on the team. It never has a neutral effect. So adding that last comment, if it's going to add to the team business, then say it. If it's not, then let it go. 
and and that takes that takes a fair bit of self-discipline because you know coaches like to be heard don't they Okay, well then, do coaches, this is another one, because again, I'm not going to give when, but I'm sure it's been in all our lives, when you've heard one of your coaches or players, very senior, give an inaccurate message, but you don't want to undermine them in that moment. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, Yeah, I I can remember. First year I coached uh, the Brumbies, so it was 97. So second year professional rugby, uh, we had a bad year. We were struggling, um, but we were still a chance to make the semi-finals. I remember talking to the team about how we still got some sort of chance to make the semi-final. David Giffen, who was a very bright yeah. guy, you know, um, quite a cynical guy too, said, oh, you know, we haven't got a chance. And I went and him at the meeting because um, <laughs> I was young and aggressive and, but the great thing was he came to my room that night and he said, listen, mate, he said, I didn't mean to take you on. It was a, as a matter of, I've got to say what I think and and I appreciate you were honest with me and it ended up to be a very, very good meeting. I think, yeah, there are, there are guys you can be more honest with and guys that you've yeah. got to hold back a little bit and I think it's understanding which guys you can, you can have a more vigorous conversation with. I mean, now going back onto the, the whole coaching and... A lot, a lot of what people were, were asking about in terms of uh, questions that were coming in about staff and development and, and time. Looking at the individual skills, the load that we put on players at international level, at all levels, you, you deal with players who push themselves to the limit. They will practice and practice and practice. And some of it's a science and then some of it's a feel as to when you intervene. So how do you work with... You have all these specialist coaches, you have all your team coaches, you have all this time going into players, but then Faz and 40 come in, I want to do an hour's kicking. And a conditioner will go, not right for them. They're going to overload. They're overloading their bodies. Where, where do you draw the line between that science and that feel and what the player actually needs build into a big, big game? Uh, well, I think the first thing is the feel's always all right. Always all right. So intuition's always right. Um, so glad you said that. The, the, more, the more experience you have, the more you've got to trust your gut feeling because uh, we had this, uh, you know, one of those Zoom meetings last night that everyone around the world's having. Um, and it was from it was a, a lieutenant from the Air Force and she was talking about decision-making in the Air Force and she gave this example of this fire captain in New York walked into this building that was on fire and within one second, he understood that it was going to blow up. So he said, let's get out of here. We can't do anything. And when he looked back on the situation, how did he understand that? Because there wasn't anything else to, to um, that was avert that, that said that was going to happen. But he could feel it was too hot, but he didn't realise that at the time it was just his gut feeling. And it's generally right with coaching. Like your gut feeling will generally be right. Like if Alan Farrell wants to do another 50 kicks and he thinks it's right, then he needs to do it. And then the support staff need to support him um, rather than an arbitrary set of, of, of factors saying that he should only do 50 kicks. Like I always say when they say, oh, you can only do 50 kicks, how do you work out 50 kicks? Because no one knows, you know. Yeah. 
but what the science does is that does give you more rigidity about your decision making and that and that's really important i think it gives you objective information but i think from a coach's point of view you should always go from your feel and then go and check the figures don't go the opposite way so you shouldn't have a sports scientist saying this is how much we should train the coach should be saying this is how much i think we should train and then when they train get the figures and work out whether it was right or not because they never tell you when you've gone under do they no it's always yeah, no. they never come out and say, look, I think you need to do a bit more, mate. <laughs> no, they'll never, they'll never do that. Um, and listen, I'll, I'll come back to a couple of questions. I just want to look at a, a couple of things that have come in from um, questions. Uh, uh, Alex, uh, and, and, the, and you've covered some of these, but it's interesting getting it from people outside. Alex, how, how is your, have you changed your management style of others? We've touched upon this during your career. Yeah, no, Alex, massively. Uh, I used to want everyone to be like me, um, which is not a good thing. Uh, you know, please don't say. Please don't say that. <laughs> I was obsessed, obsessed <laughs> with the game, and and if people weren't obsessed with the game, I felt they weren't committed enough. And now I understand everyone's got their own way of doing it. Some people need time off. Some people need time to themselves. So much more uh, individual in my approach towards the staff. Um, try to get to understand their work routines more, what works for them, what doesn't work for them, and get, and then give them flexibility to do it. Now, you don't have to answer me on this one, okay? This is not, but Rachel wants to know, who has impressed you <laughs> as a manager and a leader? Uh, oh, Rachel, there's plenty of good examples around. Um, go back, rather than current, rather than yeah, current in other sports, and go in history and rugby rather than current people. Uh, so, in, in, yeah, in rugby, uh, definitely uh, I was lucky enough to be coached by Bob DeWi, won the 91 World Cup. Uh, hard guy, but a great feel for the game. And I always remember as a player, I was, it was my first year in the Randwick first grade team and we went on the bus to the Australian Club Championship game against the brothers. He sat down next to me. I was as nervous as anything and he just said to me, how do you reckon we'll go today, mate? And just that little bit made me feel as though I was important in the team. And, and it was just his, his ability to find the right thing to say um, was, was very good. And he was so curious about, about doing things better. Um, he was outstanding. bloke I didn't like, but I thought he was a great coach, was Laurie Maines. Quite a, for me, quite an argumentative, objectable guy. But he's, the way he coached his teams was brilliant. Like, again, 95 World Cup, he had the All Blacks absolutely playing superb rugby. Yeah. And they weren't good enough in, in the end in the final. Um, then, yeah, Graham Henry stood the test of time. Um, brilliant with Wales, struggled with the Lions. Took him eight years to win with the All Blacks, but he was, again, ahead of the game. Um, and I think, again, he changed his approach massively in the period of time that he coached. Like, he was a old schoolmaster, uh, very directed coach, and at the end became much more of a con- uh, consultative coach. I think there's that great story in um, Legacy about Tana Umunga going up to him saying, hey, Ted, what do you think about your team talks? And he said, no, I think they're pretty good. And he said, well... 
And the mongers said, well, maybe you need to think about it. And they, and they ended up not having team talks before the game. Yeah, and that shows the growth of a coach because at the end of the day, the, the good or the, the coaches who want to be good keep growing and keep learning and keep understanding. There's no one best way to do it. You just keep learning. You you know uh, you know Joe Marler as well as I know Joe, and I remember <laughs> Joe, Joe Joe if he if he bothers listening to this he probably won't he'll say he won't but he might. He came up to me one day and said, Connor, he said, I know you like telling the players when they're picked and not picked, but can you do us a favour? Can you not come up on a Monday afternoon into the gym session with that little black book of yours? He said it more colourful. <laughs> he said the minute you walk <laughs> in that black book. Everyone switches off. <laughs> so Joe, point taken. Uh, he said it in a different way. You can imagine how he how he how he said it to me. A couple of things to me, but one last question, and you've answered this, but I'll ask it because Harry has asked. Uh, how do you and your coach, or how do you and your staff develop themselves? Kind of already touched on this, but just for for Harry's sake, just reemphasize. Yeah, no, no, no. Very good question, Harry. Uh, well, I, from my point of view, every three months I write myself my own development plan. I've done that consistently throughout my career. So I have professional objectives, uh, personal objectives, so to make sure that I keep growing and keep learning. Uh, assistant coaches, very similar. They're all being set tasks of how they can improve themselves. We get them to do a lot of self-reflecting. Um, and obviously at the moment they've got a lot of time to self-reflect, so it's a good time to grow. But it's about them understanding what they're good at, where they need to improve, and then coming up with a plan to improve it. Because those plans are only useful if you drive it yourself. They're not really useful if you've got someone else driving. It's got to be you that wants to improve. Okay, cool. Two little, two things just to pick up on, and then we'll leave you back to the day job, so to speak. Um, you talked about that Randwick Brothers match with a massive... You can actually almost feel the uh, um, affection that you have for the club, the club game. And I'd say the same. I talked about Mitch... And I remember his days in Gary Owen and actually the impact he had as a player coach when he came over just yeah. before a guy called John Anderson, who was the first kind of those hybrid right. Kiwi player coach. And yeah. then Mitch came in. And club rugby was such a massive part of, of everything. And are you sad that it's still a great part of the community in Australia? You know, touring there, you see it. But um, it's not the same level as it was before. Is that sad? Is that just the way of the world, how the game has evolved? I mean, what, what do you think needs to happen with that? Uh, well, I think it has been the way of the world, but I think it's going to change. You know, I think post, post this uh, pandemic, there's going to be a change in rugby, and I think we could see the clubs having a more significant role because, yeah, you know, I think uh, your roots that you get from from your club and, and, and when you're growing up and the education you get stays with you the rest of your life. And I think in a lot of ways, players have missed out on that by going from high school to academy to, to then the professional club, which has been necessary, but I think maybe there's going to be an opportunity for that academy and that club to be more joint. And I think that would be a great learning experience for the players. I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. Last one for me, and then it's and we leave you. Um, and we might touch upon it next time. Warm ups. This is one of the, another great bugbear with uh, trying to get all your coaches involved within warm ups. What do they do on the pitch? 
uh, players, some of whom want to just old school, spit in their hands, you know, put them together and run out in the pitch. And there's others who need this regimented block, block, block. How do you bring all those along in your warm-up? I'm talking the compartmentalization of the units and the individual skills, the guys who just want to be in the corner of the dressing room and doing nothing versus the guys who are really out there and still bang the wall in the old school days. There's still those people in there in the dressing room. How do you marry all that? Because it's such a key time before a game to get everyone comfortable. Yeah, we learn a lot from the Kiwis, uh, to be honest. And we've given the, the players a lot more individual time to warm up. Um, so they need to be on the field at a certain time. And then our warm-up, our team warm-up, is only 13 minutes. And then there's 30, 30 to 40 minutes of individual time where the players work out what they need. Um, and if they need some assistance from the coaches, they, they get it. So our warm-up is very discreet, very concentrated and get some right to hopefully to play. Um, and I think that's a nice balance. And I remember watching the All Blacks uh, warm up and I could never work out why they gave the players so much individual time. But I think more and more the players uh, are more likely to be better prepared for the game if you have a shorter warm up with more individual time. Because I like... Uh, I love watching teams warm up before matches. I, like I, yeah. my wife gets really irritated with me if I go off and I'll, <laughs> I'll leave her and I'll, I'll sit down and I'll watch because it's you see a lot. Do you think you pick up anything from watching those warm ups, or uh, what do you think teams are doing? Do, do, do you spot something different when they're, or have you ever spotted something in a warm up that you've applied to uh, a match from the opposition? Look, I, yeah, no, I think you see patterns, and I think you see the attitude of the team how they're going to come out at the start of the game. And like you, I think, you know, I love going to a game watching a warm-up with the team. I think you, you learn so much about the team and you learn a lot about the players. Um, so I'll always look at it and see how sharp they are. I can always remember one game. It was at K-Bay. I can still remember it clearly. 2014, uh, Maori All Blacks versus Japan. And I can remember watching the all, Maori All Blacks, you know, they had low, they had, uh, they had a number of good quick players and they were warming up and the ball was fizzing around everywhere. I remember getting my strength and conditioning coach. I said, I think, mate, we're going to have a hard day today. We ended up getting beaten by 60 points. And you could just see it. They were, they were ready to go. And the next week we nearly beat them. So I think the warm-up is an important thing to watch the opposition because you can pick up what they're trying to be in practice during the week, what they might try to do at the start of the game, and particularly in line-outs, which Steve and, and Matt Proudfoot are outstanding at, you can learn a little bit about what they're going to try to do. I tell you, when I saw Steve doing his uh, warm-up before we played the World Cup warm-up in Newcastle, I saw him on top of that ladder. You know the ladder he brings out, he stands on. I can think of some. I can think of some hookers that would throw the ball in that you would be in a dangerous place if you're on top of that ladder. But <laughs> that's a different thing. Listen, Eddie, that's been really, really good fun and enjoyable to talk to. Thanks very much for this morning, and uh, nah, pleasure, stay mate. safe. Pleasure. Thank you, Stu. Same to you. Okay, mate. take care. Well, good on you. Thanks, Thanks, boys. That's it this week on the Eddie Jones Coaching Podcast. Thanks for joining. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you can get our new releases, which will be on Tuesday of every week. And we really appreciate any comments and ratings from you to help the podcast grow. Thanks for listening.